Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars, presented to you by Cooper Tires, presented to you by the Justice Brothers, and presented to you by... It's me as well, Graham Goodwin from, uh, well, getting on to quite late on Wednesday evening here, just on the outskirts of London and merry old England. Entirely my fault for the late recording here, and apologies as well for the crackling voice introducing you, my friend. We have... A whole heck of a bunch of questions in our listener-driven sports car Q&A show. As always, you are the man who chooses between IMSA, the categories we have that we affectionately call WEC, Aslam, Elm, Zaco, WC, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, and the ACO, general and fun. Where shall we start, my dear friend? Let's start with WEC World. Let's do that. We can absolutely um, do that. And since that is your area of expertise, it means I am the monkey reading the questions. So we're going to do that <laughs> starting off regarding the WEC spa entry list coming in from at smoking puppy 841 dog shouldn't smoke, but I, I probably didn't need to say that. We know that uh, asks a very salient question here. No Janetta or car guy racing on the spa entry list. Do you still think they will compete, Graham? Right. Well, I can tell you about one of them, and that's uh, that's Janetta. But I'm not going to quite reveal the full story yet. You're going to have to wait till next week, since uh, inside the sports car paddock, for that, uh, as to what the background story is, or which part of that background story that Lawrence Tomlinson would like to share with us. But I'm hoping to sit down with Lawrence uh, in the very early part of next week and see whether he'll tell me. What he's already told me privately has occurred. Uh, suffice to say, there's a very unhappy Yorkshireman at the moment. Uh, so let's wait and see what emerges from there. I have no intelligence. Uh, that uh, should be a full stop there. But in this instance, <laughs> we'll carry on um, and say no idea why Car Guy's proposed entry has not emerged. It may well be there have been other kind of corporate um, uh, happenings in the background, but I don't think that's any indication of any particular problem for the car guy fellas. Uh, let's wait and see if uh, anything emerges there. But so uh, they did indeed tell me, Kay Casalino told me at Sepang that they would be looking to enter uh, the Spa six hours. Um, might we see a late entry for one of the LMS races? Possible. That could be interesting. Uh, but certainly no intelligence that suggests that, that might be the case. So with apologies, um, yes, both of those teams have at various uh, points told us they would enter. And for what I suspect of rather different, differing reasons, uh, they won't. We will see the G-Drive racing Orica there. They're currently testing, have uh, been the last two days, in fact, uh, testing and testing impressively uh, at Paul Ricard. But we won't be seeing the bright yellow Ferrari of Car Guy, and we won't be seeing the Ginetta G60 LMP1. Let's go to our pal Stuart Hart, asking, with the production hypercar route now open, does that mean potential future entrants, i.e. Porsche or Lamborghini, could run such a program through their GT racing divisions uh, and could really open up the top class for those who don't have massive production, specific racing production facilities like TMG? What do you think? 
It's a very excellent question. And there are a couple of manufacturers that I could give you intel on in terms of how this might affect their plans, neither of which are the two I'm afraid to at the U reference. McLaren, for instance, anything that is based on a production road car goes to McLaren uh, McLaren's GT side of things. So that comes under McLaren Automotive Limited. That is Mike Fluitt's side of things. And that is the part of the organization that's headed up by Extracker, team boss, now the director of McLaren uh, Racing, uh, McLaren Motorsport rather, Dan Walmsley. If it had been on a prototype chassis, my understanding is that that would have gone in the opposite direction, down the other end of the corridor, Woking, and that would have gone to effectively an offshoot of the F1 side of things. So that's an interesting part from the McLaren side. As far as Aston Martin are concerned, my understanding is that their contract with ProDrive currently specifies that ProDrive has have the license from Aston Martin for a set period of time uh, to do anything in terms of the GT racing with their front-engined cars. Uh, now that, uh, unconfirmed by the way from Aston Martin, but I believe that to be the case, that means that of course the incredibly impressive lineup we saw at the Geneva Motor Show of not one, not two, not three, but four uh, different mid-engined iterations of uh, current and future hypercar and supercar uh, Aston Martins, that that might see a bit of a change in the guard. Not to say there's a problem here for um, for Aston Martin, been made very clear to me, very clear to me, as you'll see, I hope, in a couple of days' time on Daily Sports Car with an extended interview with David King from Aston Martin and Aston Martin Racing, that uh, they believe that they can and would be able to sustain both a hypercar top-class program and a GTE Pro program Ooh. moving forward. So that is a significant change to... Uh, some of the messaging that we've been given from elsewhere. And that's very good news indeed, of course, for the good folks at uh, ProDrive, if that product range, which, by the way, is selling a huge number of cars. My understanding about 25 uh, orders at the moment for GT3. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, and around 40 GT4 cars of the new Turbo V8 wow. platform in, in no time. Now, the other thing to say here, MP, and this could be significant not just for ACO rules racing, but also for IMSA racing. Every single one of those 20 to 25, I think it is, GT3 cars can, with five guys – not the, the burger joint, but five uh, uh, skilled technicians, <laughs> and, in, and in five hours, with the requisite kit, be converted into full GTE slash GTE Pro uh, GTLM uh, spec. So what that gives them is not only um, enough of uh, leeway that they've got no problems to do with the homologation for GT3, that's 20 cars sold in two years, um, but it's to do with the potential to grow those customers. And I can tell you there's at least one of their new customers that has told me specifically that that is the reason that they have gone in that direction. That is the reason for them choosing Aston Martin over other GT3 manufacturers, that they've got the opportunity to pick and choose, frankly, any major GT race or sports car race on the planet with the same platform. That could prove to be very significant in terms of the sustainability of Aston Martin's racing product for some long period to come. But I'm yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, I'm going to suggest that Goodwin Pruitt Motorsports 
<laughs> buys one in GT3 spec, and next year at both the Rolex 24 and 12 Hours of Sebring, that we actually run the first half or so of the race in GT Daytona, GT3 <laughs> spec, stop, convert the car to GTLM, and then compete the, re- the rest of the race. Now, that would be kind of fun. Granted, not legal, but at least in my twisted mind, that's something I would want to do. Uh, let's go to a question that, surprisingly, it falls in my world a little bit. I can answer it quickly. Comes in from Kevin Payne. It says, given his detailed thoughts on future F1 regulations, does Stefan Johansson have anything similar on car car slash hypercar, uh, I would definitely, well, Stefan has an opinion on everything, and they're usually pretty awesome and entertaining, so I do need to chase him down on that. And Kevin also has a supplementary question for me. When should we expect part three of the great My Racing Life and Career series with Stefan? Well, uh, sorry, I'm an idiot, Kev. I've had that sitting in my hard drive since it's actually... 12 months now. We captured that at Sebring in 2018. Um, I should get that done here soon, uh, hopefully. And I know that's not that's a non-answer answer. I'm just looking at some things right now. I just pulled it up. I have a My Racing Life and Career captured with John Doonan at the uh, Intercontinental Race at Monterey in, I think, 2017. Um, I have, I actually still have a couple of podcasts captured from 2016. (laughs) I have yet to get to. So yeah, this is bad form. I need to get this done, get this out. And I do have a couple of, at least one or two other Stefan items uh, that I need to publish as well in podcast form. So my apologies, maybe as we head into the month of May, I'll try and get that ready. And then Steph is always saying, hey, whenever you want to sit down, let's do some more. So we'll try and do that, get into his IndyCar career and sports car career, um, and then into retirement and managing drivers and all kinds of crazy Swedish things that only Stefan Johansson does. Uh, let's see. One for you from Charles Hall. And I look forward to this answer if you have it. What was mm. the issue with the Corvette door in GTE Pro at Sebring during the WEC 1,000-mile race? It was broken. Oh, sorry, you want some more detail. I think it wasn't it the number panel had gone on it. So because the race was running uh, so long into darkness, you have to have the luminescent uh, number panels on both sides uh, visible because, of course, there's not a single corner worker um, that would recognize a bright yellow uh, roaring V8 uh, Corvette going by. And there was only one of them. Sorry, I was being slightly kind of... um, pedantic there but no it was uh it is a regulation that you have to have an operating uh lit number panel and i'm pretty certain that that was not the case for the corvette that's what uh brought forward the change and of course i think i'm right they changed it initially for an IMSA door and then had to make a further change did they not if i'm right it had to be fully lit bro something fully lit man lines. Uh, we got another question here from Kevin Payne, which uh, we've answered, uh, I think, recently as well, but we can get to this quickly here, too. Any updates on the revised car car regs, or are the FIA and ACO still having to tweak them to keep everyone happy? An impossible task. I did hear that one way out way to do that would be BOP to create a level playing field, would welcome your insights. Crazy concept of making manufacturers happy with new regs, and even crazier, how might you balance all of that? We're having a funeral for EOT, it sounds like, once Car Car gets here. 
I, I be honest with you, I will not be sorry to see EOT go. Uh, but the answer, Kevin, is you're absolutely right. And it may sound like it's crazy, but you in the room as well for this one, MP. BOP, it most certainly will be. They've given themselves one heck of a task with that. Um, that's, I think, we are going to be seeing um, a lot of requests for data from testing. Um, the uh, the opening races of the season are going to be interesting in terms of who's showing what. Of course, there is one advantage here. If you're going to sandbag ahead of Le Mans for a full season, it's going to have to be the full season yeah. because Le Mans is the final race of the year. So you're effectively going to have to give away an entire championship season if you're going to want to sandbag your way through that lot. And uh, that will take some bottle, if you ask me. But yes, balance of performance, it will be. Uh, because, of course, there are going to be some significant differences in terms of, uh, well, just about everything to do with, let's say, a Toyota. And if you want to see the kind of thing that uh, Toyota are suggesting might be the basis for their car car, uh, you can, pr- I'm pretty certain, see uh, Rob Loypen's interview uh, with me tomorrow on Daily Sports Car, where we've got pictures, of course, of the car that was unveiled, the GR Sp- uh, Sports Car Hyper Concept car at the Mon last year. Uh, then you've got the potential Aston Martin way forward. They've got lots of ways that they could do it. They could still decide to go with a prototype, but far more likely, I think you're looking at the third iteration in the Valkyrie family, not the Valkyrie we initially saw, not the Valkyrie AMR Pro, which is an animal, uh, but the third car, the car that was unveiled at the Geneva show for the very first time, I believe that is the basis on which they would be looking to do something. McLaren, who knows? It won't be the center because by the time these cars come to the racetrack, the center will be an old car. Um, And as for Ferrari, well, we all saw that uh, one-off concept. That is not what Ferrari will be doing this on the basis of, but it is an indication of what you can do with uh, someone else's millions and an unrestricted GT3 platform with no power or error restrictions to play with by regulation. So if this works, then we could be seeing some very exciting looking and exciting performing cars. Uh, We've got a very loudly ticking clock at the moment, Kevin, and I think everybody is waiting for the first kind of ping of the email or the slap of the uh, the paper on the, the doormat at TMG and Aston Martin uh, to see just exactly what the next stage will be in confirming some more detail in those regulations. It is now very urgent indeed. I believe we actually had the announcement of a sixth type of vehicle to balance come 2020. That's the new AHB LMP1, that being the Amish horse and buggy platform. So, yes, it seems like there's just more and more things that they will be balancing. Or, if we are to use the current iteration of the WEC. Let's move on to a Lamont Cup entry list question. And this is why I love our readers and listeners, Graham. Um, We got Lamont cup questions i mean we're this is we're getting down there in terms of obscure but awesome it's nonetheless. Lovely. The cup's ace. absolutely comes in from rob horn i believe uh has a lamar cup driver lineup come out why can't uh, they no, go to silverstone too uh now the wc race is shorter keep up the good work 
Uh, no, the answer is, hello, Rob, no, they haven't. Uh, I do expect that to come somewhat later, and I expect to be changes right to the death. Remember, there might well be some teams that have been forced into a position where they've had to change their plans if they didn't make it to the ELMS entry. There's a few unanswered questions there. There have been some teams out testing. Lannan Racing, I know, have been uh, on that uh, uh, That's test out in Paul Ricard this weekend, uh, this last couple of days rather, with Duncan Tappy and Mikey Benham. But I do expect we're going to see another high quality list. There are some great names coming out at the moment uh, in terms of uh, people emerging into LMP3 seats. Uh, we saw Thomas Erdos, um, you know, multiple championship win and double the Mon LMP2 winner. Now, of course, even older than me um, and will be a bronze driver in this year's LMS. I have heard tell of an overall winner at Le Mans potentially making it in to an LMP3 seat in the LMS this year as a silver-ranked driver. I'm still trying to find out exactly the basis for that tale, but if that does happen, that will be completely extraordinary. To explain, by the way, to those that don't understand... Jackie X. (laughs) Now, that would be something, but um, it would, Derek Bell, um, it would be Christoph Bouchou. Hey! Uh, <laughs> uh, but it, the, there are age levels at which, all things being equal, you automatically drop a, uh, a, a ranking in the FI rankings, whether or not if you're platinum, back to gold, if, uh, you know, if, I think it's 50 and 55. And Thomas Erdos, for instance, now 56 years old, maybe, I believe, by dint of age alone and the fact that he hasn't driven competitively since 2011. He's been very busy out there doing all sorts of things, including uh, some of the development driving for that extraordinary Neo EP9 electric hypercar car uh, that was developed with the assistance of his old race team at RML. Um and, you know, I think we're going to see some more names appearing. It seems to come full circle here, MP, from basically guys barely out of nappies uh, that have been picked up from carts and junior um, single-seaters to all of a sudden people thinking, hang on a minute, let's have a look at a list of racing drivers that's mm-hmm. over 55. Uh, and I think you're going to see another couple of names emerge in the coming times. You mentioned ranking. We'll say rest in peace to ranking Roger. Oh, he fine, yes. of the English beat, and I believe the specials as well, who passed. And for those of us who grew the, up the beat. with with, with Ska as part of our life lives, then yes, definitely sad to see his loss in a completely unrelated thing. But hey, we're people. We're not just racers. Uh, let's go to a couple of items here that dwell in the Class 1 realm, something that was a... Topic of great interest at Sebring, all thanks to Jens Marquardt of BMW. Rob Chalmers and Kevin Frederico have questions. We'll go with Rob first. With BMW posing the idea of Class 1 cars being used as the basis for a new prototype formula in DPI 2.0, could this new raft of 2-liter 4-cylinder turbos from BMW, Audi, Mercedes, Aston, Nissan, Toyota, Honda inadvertently revive a new GRE, that being the global racing engine concept, especially if, as Toyota suggested, they could be sold as customer engines and plonked into the back of an LMP1 car, uh, Le Mans 2020 non-manufacturer hypercar, uh, like the uh, Collis outfit, uh, thus giving any serious turnkey level of manufacturer involvement. Hmm... 
Uh, there's a couple of three questions on this. Uh, I know we've got questions as well from uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Pires, Frederico, and actually under the IMSA uh, bunch, we've got Doug Bonham with questions as well. Um, it was an interesting one, and the and the the genesis of this story bears a little repeating. Um, I was genuinely confused by um, by. Jens Market's logic in what he was telling us about reviewing the GTE Pro program for the WEC, principally on the basis that he was not convinced there was enough activation available through some of those races, but not reviewing. So in other words, there's not the same question mark hanging over the IMSA GTLM program for the M8GTE or GTLM, depending on where you prototype solution. Now, to explain why that confused me, well, if you're looking for a global prototype solution, then you're looking to go back to the same events you've just told us are not uh, not pushing enough buttons for you commercially. So I did go and seek Jens Market out after the huddle where we talked about powertrains and, hyper, uh, and uh, hybrid uh, powertrains to come for the next generation, potentially, of uh, Class 1 cars for DTM and Super GT. And he did indeed confirm that actually, no, what he was talking about is that the deciding factor in terms of the value for money would be that that would be a platform they already had. And by platform, he wasn't talking about just the um, the powertrain. He was talking about the whole package. Um, Class 1 op- operates effectively with a mother chassis, effectively with a single chassis design that covers off uh, all manufacturers. Uh, and I had... A partly on the record, and again, you'll be able to read that in the coming days on DSC, but partly off the record conversation with Scott Atherton about that. It is fair to say that what you can expect to read there is that Scott uh, was not prepared to go any further than they'd learned a lot from being exposed to the reality of what's been going on with ITR, the governing body for DTM, uh, and their Uh, the way in which they were going racing with that package. Lots of common parts between the manufacturers. That's got some massive advantages in terms of sustainability. He did say that that aspect of it, very, very interesting, was less um, forthcoming in terms of any indication that they were considering that chassis. I don't believe they actively are um, considering that chassis. I have to say, I think it's a very interesting concept to take forward. Um, and I think uh, those of you that listened to last week's show uh, will have heard me say this once before. I'll say it again. If we're going to go BOP and we've got issues in terms of numbers, then let's have for maybe a year, maybe two years, an opportunity to see whether or not we've got it right. If we're going to be uh, inviting DPIs into the top class for Le I have no particular problem with that whatsoever, but there has to be something that is offered back in terms of payback for ACO and in terms of payback for the FIWEC. So I'd be perfectly happy with a BOP class that had those grandfathered LMP1 cars from today, that had the hypercars based on prototypes, that had the hypercars based on road cars, that had class one regulation cars, and that had DPI cars balanced together into a single catch-all class uh, but with one proviso that, that cannot come at the expense of the fi world endurance championship that there has to be something shown in terms of willing by the manufacturers that want to come and play mm. on the very biggest uh, stage that they actually support the package that, uh, that that backs that up and i'll say again what i said last week if that's what the the uh, the, the decision came to then the answer from me to our friends over in Emerson would be this. 
where is the opportunity for all of those cars in the same bracket to come and play on your biggest field at the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona? It's the same thing. It's the same debate. Whether or not you've got a seemingly more successful core class in DPI or not, you want a partnership. Partnership works both ways. I'll take the one from Kevin on the top. He says, what are your thoughts on the DTM slash Super GT, the Class 1 link-up with IMSA prototypes under the Class 1 rule set? Would it benefit manufacturers having more regions to race in and help the amortized cost of research and development? Thus, privateers can get a hold of them at a more reasonable amount. Um, Again, knowing Graham's point that if this is meant to be a, a global thing, then IMSA would have to open up its books to these cars coming over and competing here, or any kind of, I guess in general, an open willingness to say, okay, if the opposite happens, Graham, and we do end up with what we think is going to be the thing, with a WEC hypercar rule set, an IMSA DPI 2.0 rule set, totally different things that might perform at relatively similar levels, but non-conforming to identical rules. If Gerard Nouveau's comments that we heard saying that they could be open to these uh, DPI DPI 2.0s playing at Le Mans, then in theory IMSA should uh, say, hey, great, bring your toys here and we'll do the same and balance them. Love all of that. But I would say if we're talking some sort of common alternative here which is really i think where you know kevin's getting at hey this hypercar thing financially it's double to triple what dpi manufacturers are spending right now it's too far could we have a more cost effective thing that would not just open up uh, the WEC to IMSA uh, prototype manufacturers, but as you mentioned, DTM, Super GT, some sort of common uh, class one thing. Again, I think there could be something there, but it's not mm-hmm. a big could. Uh, knowing the market value of America, knowing the amount of cars that are sold here, and you know it's at least continuing to be a prized market, I would just say that for those manufacturers that compete here, um, you know, opening up doors elsewhere, not bad, but Mazda, uh, Mazda North American operations competes in IMSA. I realize that there's a Mazda Japan angle, but uh, MNAO is the one behind this and funding this. So Japanese brand, but it's American branch competing in America. Acura slash Honda uh, through Honda Performance Development. This is this is Honda's American specific luxury brand, and this is an American budget for this Japanese brand to compete here. Uh, Cadillac, obviously being American, is competing in America. Nissan here, not as a brand, not as a full fledged manufacturer, but being contracted to do so. I would just say that you know that maybe don't disregard the fact kevin that this is not honda of japan choosing imsa and dpi mazda japan choosing imsa dpi these are the american firms choosing to race and compete and promote and sell here in this region specifically so would they be against competing elsewhere i don't think so 
but this is not the uh, the corporate mothership back um, across the ocean dictating those terms. So if we were to have more manufacturers competing in DPI, that'd be great. You know, obviously we have written about, spoken about um, ad nauseum about Ford coming in at some point. Uh, again, that would be a red, white, and blue American company placing its dollars behind an American formula in DPI. They certainly wouldn't turn down a chance to go to Le Mans, maybe some other places, but these are folks siding with America to sell their products to Americans, and that's where just the limited interest might come in. If IMSAs comes and says, hey, we're going to opt in to something that's even more global, class one. I don't know if that makes any of the brands that I've mentioned go, ooh, amazing. Now that this is here, boy, we got to go forward, I think. You would hear most say, if you can open up Le Mans for us, brilliant. But we're here spending here on this for a specific reason. Last thing we always try and mention too, Graham, is they have options. Uh, Ford could announce a DTM program, Super GT, yep. Mazgood, Maz. I mean, again, all the brands. They could go and race in any of these championships. Uh, Mazda, if they wanted, Acura, if they wanted, could have a car competing with Toyota right now. And granted, I mean, they couldn't really. But I'm just saying, there's there are no doors closed to any brands to compete in any championship that they want to. So while it might be cool to align open doors in the future... We should at least respect the fact that choices have been made uh, in some of these cases to do a domestic German championship, uh, Japanese or American, uh, instead of all in one. I think it's it's a, it is an interesting point of discussion across the board, isn't it? And I think what we're going to find in the coming well. 12 to 24 months MP is just exactly how close we're going to be with those performance envelopes at that point. And then when we start to see how and whether any of those sanctioning bodies are struggling for manufacturer uh, manufacturer uh, entrance, at that point, it starts to become potentially a more interesting debate. Right now, you've got BMW saying we'd like to suggest this. You've got IMSA saying that's interesting. It's interesting on a, uh, a range of fronts, but it's not something that we are going to be seriously considering as part and parcel of our regulations. Why don't we go to, as we just passed the halfway point in our Weck Asm Elms Echo questions, uh, let's see. Let's go to Jordan Darwin talking about less horsepower in car car. Mm. He says, hashtag me personally. I love the fact that my hatred for me personally has just become a thing. It's so great. <laughs> um, supercar series always seem to go flat when the race car has less horsepower than their streetcar counterparts, is car car going to have the same issue? Yes and no. Um, I'm trying to recall. I seem to recall the combination of, I think the answer, by the way, is the, the actual engine will be more powerful. Than the engines we're currently seeing at LMP one. Um, the hybrid will be substantially less powerful um, and capable than the units we're currently seeing from the Totas. But put together, they're not going to be a million miles short of a 1,000 horsepower. I think from memory, and you correct me if you can remember if I'm wrong here, I think it's around 850 to 900. That's going to be motoring by anybody's standards. Are we going to see 10, 11, 1,200 horsepower? No, we're not. Um, have to ask yourself, 
does it need it to produce the performance of the lap times that are being defined as being uh, where they need to be? I absolutely agree with you. It is kind of uh, an odd thing when you've got uh, the reality um, of, say, for instance, a McLaren F1 back in the 90s being substantially less powerful as a race car than it was as a road car. The one class I think needs the boost, and it's the one class that I think needs the boost, is GTLM, GTE Pro. I think they could usefully use a power boost, even if only for the Impro uh, specification. Uh, to have those cars running on at times less than 500 horsepower, uh, to me, is a nonsense. I think they've been reeled in more than is good for the show, and I'd like to see those fire-breathing monsters uh, doing exactly that. Uh, so, yes, the area where I absolutely agree with you, I think we should be seeing the GTE cars because they have a gap, in any case, uh, to the prototypes. Um, I think they could do with a little bit more. We're going to see more coming, by the way, for the LMP3 cars in the next iteration. Uh, though that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about road-based cars. But no, we won't see 1,200 horsepower uh, cars, but frankly, realistically, 900 horsepower will get the job done. Let's go to James Counter, who asks, how fast is a three-minute, 30-second lap around Le Mans, that being the target race pace uh, mentioned, amended now by the ACO and FIA per Sebring? says, how much would a hypercar need to be modified to get to that lap time? Are there examples which would need modification to achieve those lap times, I could probably weigh in a little bit here, James. Go for it. I mean, I can't tell you what a Bugatti Veyron Extreme 5000 would need to do a 330. I would just say that where the challenge is going to be here, if we're talking about road-based 2020 hypercars, not the actual, you know, TMG making a full car, but basically making a slightly modified LMP1 car uh, to that looks like a road-based hypercar, which is the other option here. If we're talking the road-based, that's where we, I think we're going to have some challenges specifically at Le Mans with that lap time number, knowing that that number is in the current LMP2-ish range. Mm -hmm. um, think about this. So a lot of the hypercars, road-based hypercars that Graham just mentioned, you know, hey, this thing has, uh, the Koenigsegg has 1,100, 1,200, whatever, big crazy number. That's great. They also don't have a lot of downforce. Racing, if we're talking racing standard, not a lot of downforce. So if I'm thinking about that three minute, 30 second lap time at Le Mans, could that number be approached? Sure. If it was just unbridled horsepower, but not crazy amounts of downforce piled on, you would effectively have dragsters that would struggle any, you know, the Porsche curves would be a bit of a joke by comparison to a true prototype hypercar. Uh, this is where, you know, if we're going to add downforce to these very sleek shapes, that's where this could become more realistic. But this is, this is going to be the challenge. Most of these cars are not light. Uh, they, while they are built as light as possible in many cases, Graham, they still weigh a lot because they have very heavy drivetrains. Some of them have full hybrid electric systems, which are heavy as well. Big wheels and tire. You just, everything is big and fast. And so to overcome this, you have to throw a ton of power at it to do impressive things. 
These bodies tend to be more sleek than a higher drag prototype, but then you start piling a lot of downforce on to make them get around the corners. And again, there's some possibilities in here. This is just a bit of an engineering question that I don't feel has been solved yet, James. So again, if we're talking a prototype hypercar, something built by TMG, a Dallara, a whomever else that looks like a hypercar, but is truly built to, you know, modern prototype practices, not worried the least bit about getting to 330. They should have good power. Uh, most of it internal combustion, as Graham mentioned, some of it with a hybrid, but we'll have downforce. There'll be all the things a specialist racing constructor would produce. How you get there with the other example, the road-based hypercar, yeah, uh, taking weight out's already going to be a significant issue. And uh, I don't know if the ACO or the WC would let them have a trillion horsepower. So we have this, oh my God, everyone get out of the way. The road-based hypercar is going warp speed now in the Mulsanne straight, but then is going to be crawling in the corners. And somehow these two things, these two types of cars line up at roughly three minutes, 30 seconds. That's the big question I'm hoping Vincent Beaumanil and the other technical minds can address because that's they're so dissimilar that I don't see how they get to a common lap time without making their performance in such different ways that you effectively have one car really competing on portions of the Le Mans circuit, Graham, and then really not elsewhere, and then the other car being the exact inverse. So if we're talking a race cars wheel to wheel and going battling and it has the potential of being a not a mared a mared show uh rather than a fantastic show without explanations how they might fix that yeah it's it they, they know they've got a job on their hands to give the answer about what does 330 look like uh the previous iteration of uh, Rebellion LMP1 cars. So the Rebellion R1 rather than the R13. That was around a 328, 329 race car. Nothing slow about that. It's not that long ago that 330 was seen as a red line by the ACO before the safety work was done around the circuits. And um, But 330 was a line that thou shalt not go, uh, uh, lose. The other thing to say, by the way, about that 330, that is race pace, not qualifying pace, which is fundamentally different, of course. But yes, you're talking about a substantial reeling in of the kind of record-breaking pace we've seen from the hybrids in the last three, four years. Agree with everything that Marshall said um, that, you know, what you potentially potentially end up with are cars that produce their performance in completely different ways and that that might not be something that you can duplicate at every circuit. Um, so you could potentially get cars that perform well at Le Mans, perform terribly comparatively uh, elsewhere. It's going to be really, really interesting. I know that um, – there's a couple of uh, listeners have actually suggested it would be a good idea to get the likes of Andrew Cotton on to Are, talk about this. Already spoken with the lad, and he was in the middle of uh, 
pooping out the latest issue of race car engineering. And that's not a derogatory term. It's just something, uh, actually I hear a couple of friends in the, uh, automotive magazine business. Uh, we're pooping out the latest issue busy. So not saying Andrew said that I said that uh, anyways, uh, we're hoping to have them on this week for inside the sports car paddock was not possible. So we're hoping to next week or maybe the week after to just get his thoughts. And, uh, maybe he and I can have a little bit of a, uh, engineering based conversation uh, and see if we can come up with something uh that's yep. either informational or not too grumpy so one of those two uh let's see let's get to mike hogg who asked a question that i think we had recently but don't, never mind getting into this one so what do you guys think is the medium term future for gte slash gt lamar or is it too early to tell with the mind fudge great word mind fudge <laughs> that the car car reg stuff has become and once more you're just pulling at my heartstrings mike hashtag me personally it's hard to see where more cars could come from with the loss of ford and possibly bmw now from uh looking imminent uh it's looking potentially desperate for those who would like to see more uh than a return to the days of ferrari versus porsche and not much else in gte slash gtlm so i know we're and we're going to keep getting this and we should because because it's a huge concern. You don't want to drain this amazing uh, GT category to stock this new car car thing. But where where's your fear on GTE slash GTLM uh, getting turned down to just a two or three brand category today? I think they've got this is the next big challenge. Well, one of two other big challenges they've got at the moment in terms of the rule making. One is um, LMP2 and if you dumb down the lap times for P1, then P2's got to follow to a degree. That does give them some issues in terms of the message to their LMP2 teams and the increased running costs of those cars compared to the previous generation. But it's a great question about GTE, GTLM. Uh, yes, it's a concern that you're potentially losing one or two of the major OEMs. I have to say the messaging coming from Aston Martin is very encouraging on that front. Um, but uh, for me, I think that needs a medium-term vision. We've heard from David Brabham and his backers that he'd like to see the Brabham, not the current car, the BT62, but the next car that they'll be producing with a GTE version. And I think that might have something in show that uh, there's been a massive miscue by the rulemakers in closing the door by being over-regulated uh, to those aspirant manufacturers that want to come in. There's no better way of getting an aspirant manufacturer into racing if, uh, 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 than to give them an opportunity to race in a class where there's a potential for customer cars to be sold. And certainly GTE, GTLM is exactly that kind of class. I'd like to see uh, the rules that talk about manufacturers having 22 cars uh, for the WEC gone. Uh, I'd like that to certainly happen for smaller manufacturers. I'd like to see uh, the likes of Brabham, maybe Janetta, maybe others, stepping forward with their latest cars. Who knows whether or not that might, uh, in the fullness of time, lead at least one of those minnows to look a bit further up the grid and give you a bit of a feeding chain for the proper hypercar class. But if I, if it was me and I was writing the rules right now, I'd be looking for ways to encourage the small manufacturers in and I'd be letting those cars loose just a little bit, maybe 550 brake horsepower rather than something like 490 that they're currently running. 
All right, Mr. Goodwin, we still have more Weck, Aslam, Elms, Aco. We've got IMSA. We've got a bunch of general and fun. Got about 45 minutes left, so I'm going to mash the throttle a wee bit here as my cat Rocky jumps up. Hit me, hit me. uh, Wanting to be fed. Sorry, Rock. You're going to have to wait for a little bit, buddy. Uh, Let's go to, and uh, maybe I'll answer this one quickly. Michael Zenger says, uh, reposting this, imagine a miniseries for all cars currently competing in GTE slash gtlm they have races at three different tracks monza monaco and mexico city all right the triple m altitude Mm -hmm. and they race without bob i think he means bob well i don't know i mean i got a friend bob and i'm telling you he does not deserve (laughs) to be in any no he doesn't he doesn't deserve to be in any of those cars no uh bob jack that's okay but uh good call there michael (laughs) i assume you mean without bop which cars would be fastest on which track which driver would be champion uh, I would say Ford, Ford, and Ford at all. Uh, I mean, the Ford GT is somewhat mockingly referred to by other drivers and teams as the prototype errantly placed in GT. And yeah, I mean, that car without BOP, without restriction, it should just decimate everything else, period, uh, whether it's at altitude or not. But, yes, yeah, certainly the turbos would help at, at, at altitude compared to the naturally aspirated GTE sure. and yep. GTLM cars, Corvette as well. Um, you know, the thing doesn't have a super long wheelbase. It should work wonderfully at Monaco. Uh, but between its uh, splitter and the rear wing arrangement uh, would certainly, I would think, be plenty poised long turns at Mazda. Uh, Monza, I was about to say Mazda, and Mexico City. So, yeah, I just think in every scenario, the prototype among the GT cars, even though it's oddly named the GT, would, yeah, that would be the champion, period. End of statement. Uh, Let's see. Let me pick one or two more here for you, if that is all right. Um, We'll go to Chris Ward, who says, I know that you guys talked about LMP1 and hypercar, car car thing, kind of morphing into a a junk formula, run what you brung formula, with DPI possibly as well in 2022, though not likely. Uh, But anyways, uh, would that mean someone could run the old Audi R18, Porsche 919, or Gasp Nissan? Uh, well, in theory, those cars can run next year, uh, but they won't. Uh, the reality is the cost, uh, the running cost of those cars would be utterly phenomenal. There were a couple of suggestions that uh, you might see some of those cars in a very heavyweight private hands. But I think the reality is that, that those cars are now museum pieces um, and we will not see them run again. But those cars remain legal. Um, for the coming FIWC season, the 2019-2020 season. After that, they will not be. Uh, the We already know that the, um, the non-hybrid cars will be grandfathered. And uh, as the ACO were keen to tell us, and they're absolutely correct, whenever there's been a switch between uh, regulatory um, eras, there's always been a grandfathering arrangement that's assisted the teams to, uh, to transition. And so, again, the current non-hybrid cars will still be legal for at least another two seasons, albeit in significantly dumbed-down trim uh, by the time we get into 2020-2021. But do I expect to see any of the the absolutely astonishing Porsche and Audi, uh, less so the Nissan, 
Um, I think only one of those cars now exists, unfortunately. Um, will, do I expect to see any of those cars actually uh, out there in competition again? The answer is no. I'll go. Ed Joris asks a similar question about, you know, hey, if the top class ends up being just a mishmash of hypercars, LMP1 hybrid, non-hybrid class one, fuel cell cars, uh, hydrogen, DPIs, anything that can effectively run uh, 325 or better and meets our crash standards, uh, is BOP and EOT technology good enough to give them all at a fair shot in the race? And uh, if it is, why don't we just do that? I love the thinking behind that question, Ed, because it's the spirit of competition. Hey, if these things all kind of fall into a same general category and generally perform in the same realm, why don't we just do that? It's just, to me, it'll always be weird. Never matter how many years pass, Graham, that we have this just super rigid note built yep. to this exact thing, and then we're going to balance it in some way and strip away the uniqueness. Um, yeah, I love where you're going here, Ed. I don't know if it will be, but I hope it is. I'll go to the last one here. Uh, actually happens to be for me coming in from our pal, Nick Dovniak, who says, uh, Marshall, the Toyota LMP1 cars end up giving you that punched feeling when they were running at full pace at Sebring. You mentioned that you thought they might be lacking a little bit in the testing videos. And he also says the top DPI lap times are right there with the lower LMP1 cars. Is this track specific? Yeah, the again, the Toyotas were certainly super quick, right? I mean, broke the, uh, the all-time lap record uh, in qualifying there. The Just the difference, the main difference here in, in their, uh, unfortunately, unsuccessful efforts to balance with the non-hybrids. One of the things they've taken away is the explosiveness off the corners with pure electric the uh the kinetic energy recovery system has been tamed a bit now there's still huge top end there's just crazy acceleration in general but you know if we're going back to the the monster eight megajoule plus every you know just everything deployed that you possibly can at once era lacking a little bit from there but again not uh it's still stupid fast nick <laughs> i mean again it, it, any complaints would just be silly 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 on my part all right mr goodwin we uh are your category was the most populous and as the official chooser where we be going next at all times well we're gonna we're going to him, sir. Of course we are. And we're going to kick it off with Patrick Thomas from Facebook, who uh, asked, with BMW looking at DPI, will there be opportunities for customers, privateers, to purchase these cars? Thanks for the great content, as it's a highlight of the week for him. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, certainly, Jens Market has said that this is an area they're going to look at. There is no program yet. Remember, they are very much in lobbying mode. And I think for them, we're talking very much DPI Gen 2 and not before uh, for the potential for BMW to join. And there is that ticking clock now that means, realistically, if you're not in, and unless you've got a platform that you can be a guaranteed, it's going to be um, – you know, is going to be uh, available to you from 2022, January 22, which is when the next rules come in. There's now a decreasing level of return on investment uh, for a new DPI manufacturer to come in. Uh, Ford, I think we've said before, MP, uh, the most obvious, but uh, unless you're hearing different BMW, my belief is we're not going to see them before the next rule change. 
Now, on the question here, which I know you've written about, I think everybody has written about the cover of sports car racing. The real question that we're dealing with <clears throat> here, Patrick, is what will BMW do? We know that uh, Jens Marquardt has said, yeah, hey, you know, DPI next generation doesn't look bad at all. We've sat in on the meetings as we've sat in on many meetings. The the question here is indeed if and what BMW will continue to do as a factory in endurance racing. So uh, I would not assume that it's th there's not a foregone conclusion that a pick the number uh, an M10 GTE slash GTLM car is coming or questions coming from BMW's board that have really become very serious about its future in major competition and i think the main question they're asking now and asking harder than ever along with a lot of other manufacturers graham is if it ain't hybrid should we be in it at all is this the right message to send that we're committing millions of dollars to doing something that doesn't have the magic box to ticks of hybridification electrification uh, some sort of cause-based uh, propulsion. So uh, I think that's the thing we need to get answered first. If they were to choose DPI 2.0 with the hybrids that we just know are going to be a part of it, I think that'd be great. But again, that might be more of a BMW North America uh, driven thing, knowing that uh, unless something strange happens, we aren't exactly sure there's no guarantee those cars could race elsewhere. I think it's a fair point. Um, Tom Bacon asks, with the success of Super Sebring, and it was a success, how likely are further collaborations between the WC and IMSA? I think we heard, didn't we, from both sides of the debate there, MP at Sebring, that it really is a matter of what might come up to prevent it rather than the other way around now. And that was certainly not the case before we went to Sebring. Whilst it was on the calendar for the WC, I'm not absolutely certain um, that that was as nailed in as we'd like to thought it was. As for beyond Sebring, I think the answer is nothing that I'm aware of at the moment. I don't know about you. No, I definitely believe, Tom, that we will see a continuation of this partnership at Sebring. As for it being anything else, hey, there's going to be another visit by the WEC somewhere at an IMSA round, or IMSA being invited to play at a WEC round somewhere. I cannot see that happening. So Sebring, yes. Anything else, do not believe so. Let's have a quick go here with Kevin Kemp from Facebook. Is there any reason to believe a DPI would get a fair BOP against the hypercars? Looking at this year, private LMP1 cars never had a chance. Another one with hashtag me personally. Yes. I think it's just, think it's just a ploy to fill the top class. I How's this? I believe you are correct. There is no reason to believe a DPI would, would be balanced accurately against hypercars. cars. The FAIR, the FAIR port, would get a FAIR BOP. Uh, that I don't see, because FAIR, to me at least, uh, suggests some sort of intent to uh, uh, have some sort of unnecessary separation between the two. I don't believe the ACO or FIA wouldn't intentionally... Um, dialed down the competitive capability of a DPI because 
uh, again, it would just blow up any and all relationships. It would cease their ability to receive money from those manufacturers coming over to compete. Um, so, again, from a protecting their turf standpoint, do I think we would ever see a situation where DPIs would be running faster and beating hypercars? No. Do I think there would be an active effort to actually create a significant separation to prevent that? I, don't, I wouldn't see that either. Um of all the things that I've seen come out of the ACO and FIA Graham, uh, the WC, since we've had LMP1 kind of sort of mostly collapse, it's a recognition that the big gravy days of manufacturers spending a ton with us are over. What can we do if we can't get big chunks from two or three manufacturers? What can we do to get close to that amount by having a higher number, a volume game. Okay, manufacturers, you're spending, pick the smaller number for this to compete, to have this amount of hospitality, space, branding, and whatnot at Le Mans. Um, yeah, they need the money. I can't imagine they would be short-sighted enough to overly disadvantage any visiting brand, just knowing that the money seems to be something that uh, the WEC and IMSA and, you know, every series, but this really does seem to be, if they were to do that, it would be woefully short-sighted. I'll just mention another thing, totally unrelated to sports cars, but it took place last weekend at the Circuit of the Americas IndyCar event. A manufacturer uh, paid to have their hospitality unit there. Uh, I heard it was almost, they were charged almost $20,000 by the circuit. And rather than being placed in the paddock, as there was a rightful expectation close to their teams and all their other um, transporters, they were dispatched some place way the heck out, effectively in the, the dirt and gravel. And the manufacturer came back and said, Hi, yeah, just so we're clear, we weren't wanting to have our hospitality unit out in the middle of nowhere. There is space for this money we're rightfully expecting not to be uh, just given pure nonsense. And they were told by the track, sorry, you uh, non-refundable non non deposit. And I believe the deposit <laughs> was the entire thing. And so that manufacturer said, great, thanks. You will, after this is over, you will never see us again. You're never going to get another penny from us. I just mentioned that because... Stupid. Just, well, I just think of it in this case, though, uh, with Kevin's, you know, with Kevin's great question. Sure, ACO or, you know, WC could dial visiting prototypes down from manufacturers if they wanted to, but uh, you you will cut off that revenue stream uh, for every event afterwards. So that's my it, little thought there. There's, there's an expanded point here to do with Le Monde 24 hours itself, uh, which, again, you were party to this discussion, MP, about what will happen in the middle part of the coming the next decade, which is we're going to get through the centenary of the Le Mans 24 hours. There will be a new pits and paddock complex, and I firmly expect to see that we'll have an increased number of available places on the grid for the Le Mans 24 hours. That's driven by a number of things, but of course, the finances of it are absolutely at the core of it. As uh, Autosports' Gary Watkins reminded Pierre Fion, the last time the ACO actually built a new pits complex, it, which were, came in for the 1991 race, it bankrupted the ACO and they had yep. to be effectively bailed out by local government, the famous syndicate mixed. Uh, but I expect to see 
a substantial increase in the number of cars uh, being on the maximum entry. I think, uh, I think I wrote this yesterday. I think it's six different changes we've seen since 1991. Uh, I expect to see more. And I think in part, uh, MP, that's a reflection of two or three things. One is that those manufacturers that, 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 that may well commit will be committing with less in terms of the uh, what they're bringing to the race. I think the kind of the mega bucks that were being brought by particularly Audi and Porsche their history. Um, I think you're looking at fractions of that from potentially more manufacturers moving forward. And I think as well, the nose has been a bit bloodied by their experience this year with what was a terrifically difficult um, selection this time. Um, and I think their nose has been bloodied and they've seen a little bit of their entry flash before them with the difficulties that uh, that will cause to some of the privateer teams that will not be going to Le Mans. It may also have some good payback for future relationship with IMSA because if you've got strong teams with strong budgets who want to come and spend that in the paddock and on the advertising hoardings around the Le Mans 24 hours, having more available uh, places on the grid to accommodate that can only be a good thing, not all, not only for the WEC, not only for the European Nation of Mon series, but for the IMSA, whether it's exports, car championship too. All right, my friend, we have about a half hour left. I, I won't mind. Uh, why don't you throw me? How about... I'm going to throw you a couple. I'm going I'm to throw you Jerry Harding's. Pretend it's early January 2020. Will the 24 hours at Daytona have six manufacturers in DPI or less? Less, without a doubt. I, I agree. Uh, yeah, uh, I, it might be the same exact number we're at right now, Jerry. Uh, so we'll, I will have more to say about this, hopefully in printed form, not just yappy MP into microphone form uh, here before too long. So, yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't multiple programs either in the works or uh, at various stages of potentiality. Uh, I would just say that, yeah, uh, my my brain is moving more towards 2021-2022, if we were to be talking six, then maybe 2020. Let's kick into a few generals here, uh, MP, because uh, they tend to get a little less love because they come to the We're end of our... giving love to the general. Reg yeah, re Unless that's your nickname, and that's a pretty awkward <laughs> thing I just said. <laughs> Not 90 minutes. Uh, let's start with... Okay, Chris, uh, Chris Alfby. Uh, from Twitter, with the entry list for the California eight hours, what do you think could happen to the race in the coming years as support entries lessen and lessen? Could the round go away, maybe become a round in a different series? So I'm just having a quick look here to see whether or not we've got more on that. Um, asking who our pick is for the California eight hours this weekend. That one comes from Pasta Fazul, Paul Gruper on Twitter. Pasta and Fazul. That's a very cracking, that's a cracking name there. And I think that's it for the California Eight Hours. Um, apart from David Harby. Hello, David. Uh, I've got a quick story about David in a moment from Facebook. As a photographer, how do you feel about the new fencing at Laguna Seca? So let's have a bit of a WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca moment. I, I will admit that I was... 
very disappointed with the overall entry yep. uh, for the California eight hours. 20 cars down 10 from last year, marginal downturn in GT3 uh, cars. No doubt whatsoever that the, the GT3 16 cars are there. That's a stellar entry in terms of the quality of the teams and particularly the drivers that are actually going to be showing up for the second round of the Intercontinental GT Challenge. But uh, that date change hasn't worked for them, has it? I would be very surprised if this is not the final appearance uh, for this championship round, uh, if not just at uh, Monterey in California. I'm sorry, in the U.S. in general. Yeah, I mean, I'm about to say something very dumb and obvious, but it's pretty damn expensive to come over here. And if you have something that, um, again, awesome if you're heading to Australia, Australia being much closer to Europe. um, Yeah, I just, I love the concept. If it was flourishing, fantastic. That would be a genuinely amazing thing. Not in the least bit surprised that the entry list is down, knowing the economy we are in. The thing I would maybe say, and I had this conversation with a friend earlier today, the the biggest surprise is the lack of domestic support to put these numbers up uh, where we would hope they would be. Knowing, granted, I was not expecting many, if any, in the way of IMSA GT Daytona teams in their GT3 machinery to show up, but could have been a little something. What I was expecting was more on the SRO-owned, uh, Blanc Pain World Global Challenge GT, Blank Face Pain Challenge World Global Americas GT. And they're pretty healthy uh, subscription of GT3 mm-hmm. entrants. I was really expecting this SRO-owned championship here in America to dispatch quite a few uh, GT3 cars there. Again, it's not as if the series dispatches them, but you would just think there would have been a better alignment, better something, some sort of incentive saying, hey, come on, if you come out here and and play with the eight-hour, we'll do some sort of concession to get you back uh, to help us make sure it is strong. Not la- again, not laying any blame on the SRO side, just I really thought that with as many GT3 cars we have here in North America, many of them competing in the uh, World Challenge America's uh, GT thing, that there'd be pretty darn good numbers here. And there's a little bit, right? I got right motorsports there. That's great. There's a little bit, but yeah. So when you don't have the local numbers supporting this international visit, that to me says, okay, maybe the experiment has given us the conclusion, um, has given us an obvious conclusion to go away with. It strikes me as well that the change from late season to early season hasn't worked here, MP. And, you know, it's it's an odd time with an established, effectively sprint series to put their one endurance race right at the beginning with frankly very little notice of that change uh, in real terms so you know I think they'll be going away they'll be scratching their heads I I have to say I don't agree I think they will be back in the United States I'm not quite sure Mm. where and I'm not quite sure when and how but there was a clear (laughs) clear drive from Stefan Rattel to expand the Intercontinental GT Challenge. And I think he's going to be looking not to, to withdraw a race, but to add one in Southern America, South America, uh, within the next year to two years. So watch this space. He'll be less concerned 
than perhaps we are. He's got the, the kind of factory-backed cars that will form the core of the IGTC. But the reality is that what makes those races pay um, are the entries. Um, and it's not going to help him either that the one standalone uh, GT4 America West round that supports it has only got 10 cars there too. So uh, has there been too rapid an expansion of that calendar? I think the answer is there has. Um, and they'll want to go away and think about that as to whether or not it's to do with demand, whether or not it's to do with some kind of failing administratively in, in terms of the, the way in which they promoted and marketed that race. Uh, but my guess is they'll have those answers by the end of this weekend. And there's one final one, by the way. David Harvey asking about what you think about the new fencing at uh, Laguna Seca from a, a perspective as a person who carries around electronic boxes on a stick. Well, I did happen to get a brief look at some of it during the IndyCar test uh, last month. And yeah, I mean, a little bit of adjustment to not having just free ranging vantage points and actually having fence in front of my face. In, in some spots, I do know that my friend Bob Heathcote, who is the longtime track photographer, uh, at Monterey went around and was cutting some holes for this weekend and was seeking input from photographers uh, as to where to do that, where to place them and whatnot. And I think that's uh, that's a pretty darn good thing. It's usually a fight to get such things when you have and the, the tracks photographer actually asking folks uh, who come out to shoot where should he place those things. That's a good thing. And also my favorite Bob Heathcote factoid former bassist for the punk band Suicidal Tendencies. So, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So for any of you who uh, just want a Pepsi, you probably know Bob's work. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's see. Uh, okay. Here's one I can answer quickly from The Dude. How do the electronics and Mazdas? All right. Here we go. Now this, I, I love the hashtag me personally. We're going to have to make a hashtag <laughs> out of this one that I just hate. <laughs> Uh, and I call it out on the broadcast, and Graham just laughs at me as he's just done. How do the electronics and Mazda's front nose plug into the rest of the car? I didn't see the crew plug anything together when they attached a new front clip during the race, yet the headlights worked. I'm guessing they're built into the mounting brackets. Uh, yes, correct the dude. First of all, there's since yeah, Graham is so tired of hearing me say this, since there's no rear nose, there's no need to say front nose, and I've never heard of a rear nose, so I would only think a nose could be up front. Same for splitter. There's no need to ever say front splitter because there's no rear splitter, side splitter, top splitter, or otherwise. But anyways, that's just my little bit of pedanticism. Pedantism? I'm not even oh, sure what the right yeah. word is. I might have made something up. Anyways, yes, it's actually done, the dude through military spec connections. So if you uh, if you get a chance, again, probably maybe a little bit of Googleage on the interwebs, you might find some photos. But the way that chassis are built uh, with prototypes in particular, it's even becoming a little bit of a thing with GT cars and connecting their front clips, is you will have a mil-spec connector built into the front of the tub. It is hard-mounted in there, and that has all of the electrical connection uh, necessary to power the lights on the uh, on the nose itself 
uh, depending, I mean, most teams will have the uh, the male end will be the part that is mounted to the chassis. The female end of that mil-spec connector will be on the nose itself. But knowing that to align the nose and get it onto the car, there are uh, basically some alignment dowels that stick out from the chassis as well. Uh, effectively, when getting the nose in position, and then you'll see that it doesn't just fall on from the top it actually comes from the front and they push it into the chassis itself those alignment dowels basically align the nose itself and once that basic alignment happens the next thing as it's pushed on further is the uh, female mil spec connector plugs in and connects to the male spec and that's when you see headlights come on and all kinds of good things so that's why there's no actual someone actually reaching in and plugging uh, any kind of connection together because you don't have to do that anymore let me uh, uh let me throw one at you and i'm gonna go throw it. it at you this comes in from our pal james from his crash at bathurst and you've been the number one news source in uh. team pappas updates well, that, not, nothing heard from Tim. Uh, last I saw Tim, I, I think, as I told you, was uh, looking very, uh, very sore indeed and not a little dazed um, getting off the flight from Sydney as I came through arrivals in uh, LAX on my way through and on my way home from Bathurst. It was a big hit. Um, and I would guess he will take his time as well he should. Uh, you know, Tim, not a professional race driver. He's got other things that are in, uh, important in his life, as any right-thinking person should. Uh, wish him well. Uh, do I think it's it's it, that's Tim done? Probably not. Do I think we'll see him racing again this year? I wouldn't be remotely surprised if we didn't. The next question, I would say, has to be possibly my favorite of the year, and it's Ooh. because it's so darn smart, and it I. It makes me mad at myself for not recognizing it. So anytime I'm mad I didn't think of something, then that's super awesome. This goes to Peter Bester, who says, With the JMW Motorsport team running Jeff, Mateo, and Way this season, JMW, can you think of any other examples of appropriately named drivers at teams? (laughs) Um... Oh dear I mean, me! Would Louis Chevrolet driving a Chevrolet or Enzo that would be Ferrari quite fun? A, I mean, that would that would count. Now, what would be strange if Enzo Ferrari drove a Ferrari that was actually built by like Fred Ferrari, someone totally different? That would be. We did, it's it's not it's not quite the same thing, but uh, I am renowned with horror amongst my DSC colleagues on our road trips for coming up with ludicrous ways to pass the time, and uh, one of those those games we played was come up with the most amusing or least appropriate driver combinations that you would see written on the side of the car. So Martin Short and Pat Long, for instance, people <laughs> won. Uh, but, uh, but without a shadow of a doubt, the one that actually had the car rocking was, um, was Joey Hand and Alex Job. Uh, <laughs> that one. <laughs> so that one. And we've yeah. evolved into eight-year-olds. All right. Yes, we yeah, have. This but, is uh, fairly... But, but, um, uh... <laughs> Oh my goodness! But uh, no, unless unless uh, you know one of the uh, how can we put this less storied cars that actually had somebody called Johnny Dogshit driving it. I can't think <laughs> of 
Um, I can't think of anybody that comes. I, I'm so gutted I can't come up with a Christoph Boucher answer to this one. No, and again, this doesn't apply to anything. I just in, in terms of nom de plumes, one that uh, I love. I think I might have mentioned this before. And again, it doesn't apply to anything. It just came to my head, so I'll talk about it. That's pretty much my life encapsulated here. Uh, my dad's business partner and best friend, Rick Sturza, the two of them... Uh, uh, bought, built, maintained, and ran a Lotus 23B here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area SCCA uh, club racing region. And Rick, uh, at times, would, just because he had a very uh, strange and hard to pronounce and even spell last name, uh, Sturza, which has a lot of vowels and consonants just chucked in there for fun, uh, he would sometimes just go by Rick Nifty ace race car driver and i thought that was the best thing ever so uh it's not as if i would ever have a need to check into a hotel or under some assumed name but rick nifty would certainly be it if i ever do the only one i can come up with off the top of my head and it is because i've got a poster on the wall to my left um which i'll describe in a moment would be had we had a particular ex Formula One driver from Germany involved in NASCAR uh, back in the carb days and had a bit of a blow uh, of that uh, engine. That would make him Glock uh, stock and two smoking barrels. (laughs) I thought Timo did a little bit of NASCAR something. It might not have been in the U.S., but uh, anyways. All right. Well, we always fall off the rails, so I don't want to pretend like we don't. All right, Mr. Goodwin, we have... We've got about 15, maybe 20 minutes if we want. Okay. Uh, where should we stumble to drunkenly uh, for more questions? Let's have a quick look at. Uh, let's try this one. Another one from James Counter. Um, resubmitting one. As the frequency of significantly wet races seems to be increasing, do you think regulation writers should be writing new regs to run better in the rain thanks you for the interviews with jeff brown i agree with him keep up the good work thanks very much for that james i'll give my tempereth on this one i certainly think there could be some attention paid to what we do about weather interruption by regulation um it tends to be when it gets a little bit chaotic i'd like to see a little bit more um clarity and maybe a little bit more flexibility added in there um particularly if there's uh, a way that you can actually get around that by having a substantial delay in coming back and playing later in the day or even the following day, if that's possible. I have come across races where that's not been made possible because that's what the regulation says. So as for running it better in the rain, um, well, I'll answer a question, by the way, that's not been asked, which is there was a question asked about why is it you have to declare a wet race um, in order for the teams to run on wet tyres. It's to do with tyre allocation. Uh, tire allocation numbers uh, principally but it is absolutely in the regulations I had a quick look through them last night for something else and spotted that there uh, as for a thorough rewrite not sure that it's needed i think they do a pretty darn good job for the most part in getting races underway uh, it tends to come down not to regulations but to actually uh, what the race director and his staff and the safety car drivers, and for that matter, the teams are actually feeding back. So quality of communication, for me, is the absolute key to getting the best we can out of unfortunate circumstances with weather. What do you think, MP? I think there's one area that, and it's not necessarily a, quote, rules item, it might be a negotiation item, 
And I've seen this happen in IndyCar. I've seen this happen definitely in sports cars as well. Is the issue that would lead us to stop racing and or just trundle around behind the pace car at very low speeds is excessive water on the track that would, you know, call it just giant puddles or a lack of runoff flooding in areas uh, to the point to where just instant hydroplaning would happen. And when we have a situation where the height of the water is so much that it will act, you know, in a hydraulic manner and lift the car off the track, no questions, no issues, nothing to be done, either get the cars off track or just run so slowly behind the pace car while trying to get that water off the track or wait for drainage. I get all that. The one area that frustrates me a little bit, Graham, or I think there might be negotiation to be had, is it seems like we have gone away in road racing from having monster rain tires, meaning tires with big, giant, deep sipes. That's S-I-P-E-S. Those are the cuts in the tires meant to run over water and excavate water from the tire so therefore allowing the contact patch to actually hit the ground without you know with very shallow sipes again you're effectively going to be lifting the tires off the ground if the water is uh too high on the track it just seems like and it's a general comment compared to this specific series needs to fix its stuff but it seems like we've just gone away from having like holy cow rain tires that would allow us to run in heavy heavy rain uh not as much as maybe we used to so it seems like there's been more of a ooh, if it starts to get bad we're definitely going to have safety car intervention possibly pulls a car off pull the cars off track and in many instances again without naming any specific series we maybe don't have we have a big allocation of say intermediate wets but not really deep holy poop wets to deal with that kind of rain part of me wonders if we were to have Siri say, hey, please bring, you know, manufacture some so that if we do have heavy rain, we don't necessarily have to go into a bring the cars off track or run around in second gear behind a pace car. I love a really wet race, but if we don't have tires that can deal with that amount of water, then we're just going to kind of keep tripping into the scenario where we can't race so that would be my one thought bring back the super holy cow wets and that theory would allow us to do more rain racing than less uh fair point uh fair point let's have a quick look uh there's a question hang on a sec as i managed to scroll through the page alex eichmiller how alex uh ask what do drivers and teams think of street courses he says from a fan perspective temporary cement walls catch fencing and banners make it less enjoyable especially if you're interested in photography we also see small mistakes creating huge messes started the baltimore lms race in 2013 took out half the field and red flagged for nearly half the race drivers and teams see these street courses as an additional challenge to overcome would they rather be racing on a traditional road course i'm going to leave that one entirely to you uh, by dint of the fact that rather famously i have never attended a street race uh, you spent years as a male stripper, and yet yeah, no, that was that was the time lost downtown. Yep. You were downtown when these things were happening. Ah, downtown it's Goodwin. It's an odd thing. There have been a number of occasions when I've covered series for 
daily sports car where a round has taken place on a street course. British GT, for instance, went to Poe. Uh, we had races for the FI GT3 Championship in the street race in Bucharest. Uh, there was the Baku race before Formula One went there. We had a couple of years where that was uh, a one-off race, City Challenge race for um, the FIGT guys and of course myriad North American races I've just never been there when they've happened the closest to a street course I guess I've ever seen would be the Le Mans 24 hours mm, yeah fair point I mean Alex it's a little bit of a hard question to answer because it's it's so widespread there's no such thing as a driver opinion about such things I just tell you that from the drivers that I interact with on a frequent basis uh, would tend to be the ones who love street course racing because it is such a challenge and there's such a high penalty for being anything less than excellent. And the ones that I tend to hear moan and whinge and complain, not always, but more often than not are ones that I don't highly rate on a personal level meaning just i don't think much of them doesn't mean they aren't great drivers just i don't look at them with much esteem or those who just aren't very good period and everyone thinks yeah that person's not particularly good why are you giving us your opinion um you know think about this if you are going through a series of 90 degree corners on a street course that might not be that exciting compared to blasting through Eau Rouge. I understand that, but there is still immense skill and talent needed to do that. Granted, if you love Eau Rouge and you fly through there at 190 miles an hour doing amazing things and make a mistake there, you've destroyed the car. You've probably broken some bones. You have, you know, there's some very dire, dire results. Uh, Same thing can happen on a street course. Might be a little bit lower speed because... You know, most street courses, I'd love to see a street course with an Eau Rouge. That'd be amazing. But ultimately, we're talking about people doing extraordinary things where a high amount of talent and precision is required. So, yeah, you cite the start of the 2013 ALMS race at Baltimore. That was a poop show. I mean, these things can go wrong. But uh, many of the best drivers just absolutely love the challenge because they get to go out there and fight and attack and maybe add one thing, Alex, that I would say they don't necessarily get to do to the same degree elsewhere, and that is push themselves to the point to where they can see and feel the absolute limit because of the narrow or hard track limits, right? It's one thing to say, ah, I'm going through the kink at Road America uh, with 3, 3% more throttle, and that might cause a crash, or I might have that left rear tire just dip out a little bit onto the dirt and, oh, I saved it. I mean, that's a huge rush and risk. Would also say, don't discount the fact that being able to just touch the barrier with the outside of the left mirror, the left, you know, door mirror, and just hear that little (laughs) as you shave a little (laughs) fraction, uh, a half a millimeter of carbon off of it because you have come so close or you've just touched this little thing. There's that same thrill, even maybe at a much lower speed, but, you know, the the confines, the the thought of having very confined and defined uh, circuit boundaries and knowing that you can play within those and how much margin can you erase without 
just planting yourself in the wall and grinding to a halt. There is a thrill that comes from that, that maybe the, okay, I got half a tire out onto the dirt at the kink, but the barrier is still a couple of feet away. It's a threat and a worry, but this is one I can truly feel because, holy crap, my helmet is six inches away from the concrete or the cement. So, uh, again, the, the, to me, the best drivers love uh, risks and challenges at any circuit. So there wouldn't necessarily be a oh, temporary circuit, whatever, who cares? Haven't seen that. Um, we're running out of time. Can I run through a couple of really quick ones here? Of course. Uh, we've got uh, James Betha from Twitter. One of the current INSA teams running FIA ACO sanctioned events. Do they take their current provided VP racing fuels with them or use a fuel provider from that particular circuit? Uh, ACO uh, events all run on Total Fuel. It is a uh, spec fuel for that purpose and indeed uh, when one of the cars actually had tested with different fuel earlier in the week and hadn't properly flushed their system out last year um, they were disqualified from a win at the Red Bull Ring that was Duquesne Engineering so the answer is nope you use the fuel that's defined by the championship uh, James uh, Brian Mackay or McKay asks why don't all sports cars have two seats he thought that FI definition of racing sports car including a prototype included the provision for two seats didn't see two seats or room for two seats in prototype races the 12 hours of Sebring you can in certain circumstances I know certainly there are a number of LMP3 cars fitted with two seats and I have seen um, both an LMP2 car of the previous generation fitted with a vestigial seat the most famous one uh, that is fitted with a second seat is one of the X-Factory Bentleys uh, that does operate, um, giving those uh, the ultimate joy rides, if you like, uh, with a second seat. But even to achieve that required very substantial work to shift some of the electronics that had previously been in the cockpits behind the firewall into the engine bay. And that's the point. It's the regulation. You're right. Uh, it edges towards that. But the reality is, in this day and age, that space is taken up by a myriad of electronics. And, of course, the biggest change inside the modern-day LMP cars MP is the new um, head restraint bar that actually uh, cuts the cockpit in half now. Cuts the car in half? What kind of madness is going on here? Hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, well, I mean, I'm looking at the clock here. We've got a minute or two. Should we uh, should we fit in anything else? Uh, I think we should go with a really quick one with the fun side, mate. Jacob Beam. Do you want to read that one? It's, uh, he says it falls under a pick-a-driver question. Absolutely, absolutely. Feel free to ignore it, he says. No. Um, let's have a quick look. Rebuilding your home from the ground up. People from the sports car racing world will be making all the choices for you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, God. <laughs> you I'll, can't. Veto- I'll take it from here. You can't veto their decisions. Yeah. And you have to actually live in the house they build for you. Which <laughs> driver chance. will you trust with making the blueprints? Which team principal will be in charge of building the house and actually participate in the process? And which race engineer will pick the furniture and art to hang on the walls? We now have two of my favorite questions of the year in the same episode. Thank you, Jacob. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw all three of these to you, Goodwin. You're closing the show with awesome answers to Jacob's uh, fun question here. So uh, you actually have to live in the house. So which driver do you trust first with making the blueprints? 
Well, oddly enough, I do know a couple of three actually British GT drivers from back in the day that were house builders. Um, that was how they made the money to go racing. None of them particularly on my list of friends, has to be said, but um, there are a number of names uh, back in the day, the likes of Richard Stanton uh, back in the day, fib to be one, so Richard and I don't talk. Um, but uh, there's one or two of the guys that were actually house builders, so perhaps one of them. There is actually an, an overarching answer I'll give after I've given these answers, by the way. Next one was what? Which driver? Which team principal will be in charge of building the house and actually participate in the process? That's a great question, isn't it? I'm going to go. I'm going to go for Sam Hignett. Um, if for no other reason than I know it would make him remorselessly miserable, and that would be funny. <laughs> Um, and which race engineer will pick up the furniture and art to hang on the walls? Oh, I know the one you should pick. I'm so hoping you do. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Peter Barron. Oh, I mean, of course. He's, he's a complete loon. You're going to have. Oh, of course. You're going to have posters of, of pink toenails. Oh, um, man. You're going to have. Some it won't be boring, will it? 40s and 50s style pinup girl stuff. Although you never do such a thing because you're a progressive male. But again, you would have to just abide by the decision. Yep. I mean, you know, uh, we are talking so an absolute. lunatic of an american uh all in all the best ways all of our worst traits worst traits in an american compilation that's highly amusing and fun i mean would you allow ryan dial to help though to bring in some european sensibilities no scottish scottish no misery Uh, but, but remember this the one thing you couldn't trust Peter Barron with is the furniture truck because he's now a two-time loser to get the thing stolen, wouldn't he? That's <laughs> twice how that's happened. Uh, the, but my overarching answer to finish my part of the show is if you think I'm letting any of those assholes near my home, not a chance, <laughs> not a chance, none of them. <laughs> ah, that's brilliant. Well, I was just off again. I'll just throw in that uh, young Sean Rahal who has retired from professional racing, but is one, is planning to return to do some sprint car racing here in the Midwest of America. Uh, he actually has made a living outside of racing and now is more or less solely focused on uh, either home construction, home oh, renovation, wow. flip buying and flipping houses. So uh, Good that, on you, that's Sean. a driver, right? I, I, uh, I don't know if I'd trust him with blueprints because I don't know if he can write or if you'd want blueprints <laughs> done in crayon, all kidding aside. But uh, Sean would certainly know how to build the sucker, I believe. So maybe there's something there. But, but, and now I'm thinking about it, he did drive the Delta Wing. So if I'm thinking of shapes he might build, um, you know, the old old Pruitt Phallus house. I don't know yep. if that's the Probably. one. I'm, yep. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we have a, a right. There's a lot of pe- Well, may, see, we figured out the way to close the show in a perfect, perfect week in sports cars manner. Which driver would we absolutely need to employ, at least in the construction side? That would be the infamous Christoph Bouchou, since he is a hammer-wielding person. <laughs> and now, granted, he prefers to use that to threaten other drivers, but if he could use that to threaten some nails, hey, we've given him another job. We've given him a purpose that does not involve being the most hated 
the most dastardly dickish sports car driver on the path. It the put a smile on his little face, wouldn't it? Imagine the little face smiling. Yeah. Oh, Lord. No. All right. I I don't think we can do any more destruction to our reputation. Should we stop now? We should. Stop I think we're now. done, mate, before yeah. someone else tells us we're done. Well, it's been good knowing you all. We thank you for uh, <laughs> your, your poor, poor choice of tuning in for uh, over a year now. But all kidding aside, Graham... You know I love doing this with you. This is so much fun, and uh, I apologize. That's something you haven't had a man say to you in a while. Uh, we did just pass two and a half million downloads last week. Wow. So thank you to all of you for helping to make that possible. Since we launched uh, the podcast in May of 2016, we're coming up on our third anniversary uh, here in May. We are just, what, two months past the uh, one-year anniversary for our weekend sports car show, and brother this is just fun every week we get great questions mostly serious some of them silly and y'all have hopefully figured out i'm the guy who just loves and lives in that place of silliness so it's just a lot of fun and thank you for making this thing possible and also thank you to cooper tires and the justice brothers and i'll let you take us home from there uh, thanks guys another good week uh, not a lot of racing in the past few days but plenty to come and uh, amongst the things we'll be sharing with you for next week's show I'm hoping to be up with our good friends at Janetta uh, in the intervening period and then I'll be looking forward to for me the start of the European season proper we do have some racing this weekend with the 24 hour series we had VLN of course last weekend then uh, after next week's show we get uh, on the train as we'll be doing this year uh, and going down to Port Ricard for the start of the European Le Mans series and the Le Mans Cup um, for 10 days down in the south of France in the usual freezing cold conditions. Can't wait. All right. I am Marshall. Hashtag me personally. Hashtag front nose Pruitt. <laughs> that is Graham. Hashtag male stripper pole. Goodwin. We will speak to you next week on the next episode of the Weekend Sports Cars. <laughs> <laughs>